0: This Life, a podcast about issues and people that inspire me, John Naples Campbell. People have always said I should write a book, but why write a book when I can spill the tea with guests each week? This week on This Life, I speak with BBC journalist Amy Irons. At only 30 years of age, Amy has become a news anchor and well-known face on Scottish television, moving from the flagship capital morning breakfast show to part of the team on The Nine. She's been open and honest about her journey with mental health and we discuss all this and more on this week's podcast. Please welcome my great friend, Amy Irons. Hello, Amy Iron.
1: Hello, my darling Ong. That's the podcast.
0: Yes, let's start the like, like, just like, start it honestly and openly. So, um, she calls me Ong, and I call her Mamie. There we go. (laughs) So
1: we're not even going to explain why. No, no,
0: that might come up later. But um, so Amy, thank you so much for being on my podcast, This Life. Um. And you know, I love you so much. So I'm so excited to be speaking to you. Um, And um, Amy and I had a lot of conversation before this was recording so nothing's going to be off limits Um, limits. No, my shady binder has been put away so I I don't need to dig it out to bring anything up Um, and I really hope you're going to enjoy this interview with Amy now Amy Amy's Amy's voice is probably a well known voice um, from this morning's um, radio when she was on Capital FM in the morning and now her face is well known um, for being one of the flagship um, news anchors for the BBC Scotland channel. So Amy, how did you get to be on the BBC flagshipping one of its biggest um, news uh, programmes for the new channel?
1: So I mean if, if you want to take it way back I suppose I first decided that I wanted to get into the media when My mum and dad did that whole thing of you can't be an actress. So I, you know me, John. All I ever wanted to do after coming to theatre was I just wanted to get into acting. And my mum and dad did that whole thing of have a backup plan. And then there was
0: nothing worse than saying that to a young person. Have a have a backup plan. I don't Don't want a backup plan. Yeah.
1: Go do it, kids. Don't don't listen to that. And um, I remember. well, I can't remember what exactly it was. I don't know if it was just, um, I don't think it was a play or if it was just an improv or something, but remember at theater, I had to be, I remember having to be a TV presenter in a scene. Um, and I just remember thinking this is actually quite fun because in a way it's like a performance. So I must've been maybe what, 15 or something then. And I thought I really enjoy this. And from that point, I just decided to go and try and find some work experience. So kind of fast forward and I did some work in local radio I then went to uni and studied journalism. And from then on, it was just getting as much experience as you could. And I worked at STV and then ended up, as you said, at Capital. And from that point, I was building a little bit of a profile. It was a bigger radio station. And then the BBC Scotland channel was launching. So I just applied for a presenting job there. Didn't think I would get it, to be honest. Thought I gave a terrible interview um, as I was jumping on a flight to South Africa straight after it and had done a morning radio show so I was all over the place which is nothing new to people who know me and then yeah I just I got the I got the job which was a big surprise and so so
0: so pausing you there so tell me about um going back to university because you signed up for this university course and you went to Glasgow um now obviously the media is changing every every single day so like when you went to uni podcasts weren't a thing yeah um twitter probably had just been invented um like social media was kind of just taking off so did you know um back then what type of media presenting you were wanting to go into or were you quite open to absolutely anything
1: so i think and you're totally right things like social media wasn't really a big it it wasn't exploding like it probably did maybe well i went to uni in 2009 so it was maybe three or four years into that that you know twitter and instagram and facebook really were becoming like you know big platforms that everybody was using um so i think when i first went to uni i was very much thinking the traditional media route and i thought television broadcasting radio i knew i would have to use my voice because my writing skills were just. Not, not, I don't want to say they were poor because I obviously did enough to get through uni and did well in my exams and things, but I was very much, I would say that my skills were kind of the more performing side of it, which is why I loved acting and loved, you know, talking and speech making and all the things I used to do in class. Um, so I knew that I wanted to go down the broadcast route, but I thought it would be more traditional routes like radio and television. Um, And it wasn't till, yeah, after finishing uni that you did, you would see people setting up their own blogs on YouTube. And yeah, you would get podcasts like this. And so I think it certainly opened the doors. But when I first started at uni, I thought it would be the traditional broadcast route I would go down. And
0: you're from Dumfries. um, And that's where I first met you. Um, And for me, coming from a major city going into Dumfries, I was like shell-shocked at how small everything was but also the kind of like a lack of aspirations for like young people and um, a lot of young people didn't want to leave the area Um, they didn't Um, when they said they were moving into the city they were talking about moving into Dumfries not actually moving into Glasgow to Edinburgh so like did you struggle with kind of aspiration as you were at school or did you always know you were going to get out and do something?
1: So I think Probably a bit of both, but because, so my mum and dad, they split up when I was about six or seven, um, and my mum was living in Stirling and my dad was in Dumfries, so I was always kind of split between two places, so I didn't feel the sense of I suppose Anchorage to Dumfries and then whenever I was up at my mum's in Stirling she we spent a lot of time just being in the central belt she would take us to places in Glasgow she worked in Edinburgh so I felt like I really knew the big city if you like before I actually got there but there was probably a part of me that thought I don't know if if I was ever told it or if it's just something that I kind of grew up thinking was don't get too ahead of yourself, you know, people from, people from Dumfries, they don't go on and do this kind of thing, and, um, you know, don't, don't set the bar too high, because it's probably unachievable for you, Um, so I I kind of, I thought, while I always wanted to get out of Dumfries, I didn't actually really know if I would, and then applied to go to uni, but still kept kind of coming down to Dumfries every weekend, and it was quite daunting moving into Glasgow and I still had a lot of my friends and my boyfriend and everything at the time were all in Dumfries so I was very much still quite a home bird and I would say that that just it probably took a couple of years to kind of grow out my shell a little bit and enjoy the big city that Mm. now feels like home because I've been here ever since and it's it's so funny how when you've lived somewhere for so long I now can't ever imagine moving back to Dumfries and glasgow feels like home when i remember first coming up here and going this is terrifying everything is massive what on earth am i doing here so yeah. no it was it was quite daunting
0: and it's quite and it's quite interesting because if you actually look at figures um, of young of uh, young people who are from rural areas and go to university, they're actually higher chances of them dropping out of uni and moving back home than mm-hmm. them completing their degree. So so it's quite it's quite interesting to hear um, like your thought process there about actually yeah. is this for me. Am I going to be able to be OK here? What was it like um, living with your dad full time? Like what was that like?
1: So it's, it's funny you ask that because I think obviously attitudes have definitely changed towards just you know families and what is normal but when I was so well I'm now 30 so you're talking to over 20 years ago because as I say I was about seven so what 23 years ago um, I remember being at school and kids in the class asking me why do you live with your dad that's weird where's your mum?
0: Um, like back then it was like unheard of
1: yeah it was unheard of I remember (laughs) it it was unheard of for people certainly to live with their dad and it was still actually quite unusual for parents to get divorced there wasn't or if or if parents were divorced it certainly wasn't something that was really spoken about Mm -hmm. and I certainly I remember being a kid and feeling feeling strange I thought am I, you know, I went from thinking like what I'm going through is just normal, this is just my family life, but it's not until you have other children questioning your family situation and your upbringing you think, is this normal? And I had nowhere else to look. I didn't have anyone else I could compare myself to. I didn't have, there wasn't like an online community for single dads or kids of recently divorced parents. You just, you only had your own kind of experience to draw from. So it, it was strange in some ways going through school because people did kind of question it um but in terms of my upbringing I never I never ever felt like it was it was anything unusual because I had two loving parents and I think it's actually going through all of the things that I went through as a kid and their divorce and new relationships that they had and siblings and everything it I want to say it certainly made me appreciate just having loving parents who, you know, I would rather they were separate and happy than staying together for the sake of sake of us. Um, and I love my, you know, my, my family and my life has been much richer for the five brothers that I now have. Mm. Um, and, you know, all the extended cousins and aunties and uncles and everything. So my life is definitely better for it and I wouldn't change it.
0: Yeah and I think I love that about your family and when I see your kind of Instagram posts is that you're always smiling, you're always happy um, and like your, like your mum and dad, um, I feel it comes across that like they've still got quite a good relationship because of you guys um, mm-hmm. and, and that is so important because 'Cause I think you're right. It's only it's only came quite recently that we've started even in school talking about different families. and um, how your families can be um your granny or your granddad, it can be two mums, two dads, it can be your dad, it could be your mum. But also you were right that you, it would be interesting to speak to your dad to find out how he coped because because like so this I mean we we did say right at the beginning, like nothing was off bar. Nothing so off. um so like how did your dad deal with the whole kind of Oh, Amy, let's have a chat about periods. Like, how did no, that? Happen? I don't.
1: I don't think. To be honest, I don't think he ever did because okay. my mom and dad, in the early, in the kind of early stages, their relationship was very fractious. It was not very good at all. It was, you know, it was not nice, as I'm sure a lot of divorces are not.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but because I still saw my mom, like. most weekends and by the point of being a teenage girl they were back on talking terms I think they probably had discussions behind the scenes of are we going to talk to Amy about this who's going to do that so the birds and the bees chat and periods and all body changes all kind of came through my mum
0: okay um
1: but there I mean there were certainly points because I spent a majority of time with my dad that I remember thinking as a girl Oh, you know, something's happening, or yeah. you know, you go through something that you would maybe normally talk to your mum about. But I was very lucky that I had my stepmom Gillian, who I was also really close to. So, I think my dad probably felt more awkward than I did because I just thought, oh, it's fine. I've got other people to talk to about these kind of female female issues. Yeah. Um, I, I can I can imagine it being probably a bit nerve wracking for him at times. You know, like I just, I just remember we laugh about it now, like him getting ready, me getting ready for school, and my dad having to try and put my hair up in a ponytail. And it was like he was ripping the follicles from my head. It was like, <laughs> and he's like, and he's like, Amy, it's only now that we talk about it. He's like, when would I ever have brushed long hair? And I remember he obviously got so sick of tying up my long blonde hair that I had up until I was in primary three or four that he then took me to the hairdresser's and got it chopped into a bob, and I cried
0: it was easier for him basically
1: easier for dad <laughs> yes but i, I so was an apology
0: but i think actually probably all that is why you two are so close now yeah. Um, because like you've got a closeness that that i love because because I do not have that with my dad um and and I just love that you are so close and so positive about each about each other and about about each other's journeys and about your um your achievements and um, and it probably comes from that kind of having to be very close at a very yeah. at, at, at very difficult points I mean when your mum and dad divorced it's a very difficult time for a young for a young person um to go through changing wise but let alone having family in two different parts of the country as well. Yeah, um, and then- yeah no
1: I definitely think I definitely think that's why I'm so close to both of them. And I mean I think my dad it's funny because we've just it's not really maybe until like I speak to friends and things who say oh gosh I would never you know my dad would never say love you my dad would never hug me my dad would never have these big deep emotional conversations like I I go to my dad about I mean there's nothing that I wouldn't discuss with my dad now
0: which is brilliant yeah. which is
1: which is really really good and I think yeah I, th- I think probably because you know single parents often have to do both roles yeah so at times my mum would have had to have you know, played the dad and my mum, my dad had to have played them, the mum and it's probably things that my dad ended up doing that he wouldn't have probably thought about from when he was growing up. And like my granddad probably wouldn't have had, you know, big emotional chats and coming in an arm round and, you know, crying things out and just Mm
0: -hmm.
1: being open with your emotions. Like I don't think my dad would have done that with his dad when he was growing up. Um, but it's certainly something that me and my dad kind of established very early on because I mean I was really upset when my mum and dad obviously Mm -hmm. split up and had all these kind of confusing emotions and worries and I was always a worrier which you would say was a worrier but now it's like an anxiety anxiety yeah but I really struggled all the time with that so I think my dad just got very used to us being quite open and, and talking about how we were feeling so
0: and I think that's made him a better person as well um and made him um probably this might sound wrong um but maybe value
1: women more as well yeah uh uh-huh. definitely definitely yeah. well, um, they say don't they, that there's you know every kind of person has the more kind of masculine and feminine traits to their personality and i definitely think that my dad nurtured a lot of his feminine traits yeah um, and i think that i think that's a good thing for you know any any man to be able to do
0: no definitely i think i mean i i mean i was raised in a household full of women so i think and even though i'm a gay man i think i very much think like a woman i very much understand where they're coming from um and um i think that's why i'm a lot more empathetic as well um yeah. and it's so important that um that as young people we have these relationships with the opposite sex that um, that actually society and culture have normally separated us. Yeah. So um so yeah. Anyway. Um so um so we really
1: could talk all day couldn't I we know,
0: totally. Um, so going back to your career. So you started um so you had um you were I mean I mean like I remember messaging you saying Amy I'm sitting on your face and like I was literally on a bus that had a massive face of you um and like I was literally sitting where your picture was um that probably sounds quite rude but you know what I mean um so um so I mean like how was it to be on the flagship capital fm morning show like how like how like how was that it
1: was An amazing, an amazing time is what I would say. I think it was probably the most daunting and nerve-wracking time of my career so far, I would say. Actually, maybe with the exception of Hogmanay, that's pretty scary. Um, I think because I was a listener. So because I was a listener, I had been commuting from my mum's and going into Glasgow, spending an hour and a half in the car every day, um, listening to the Capital Breakfast Show. So when... I remember going into the studio to first demo. I was there with Des and Stephen and I walked in and it's so strange hearing somebody's voice in person that you're listening used to listening on the radio to. Um, so I think I just had this like, wow, this is a really big show and it's really, you know, I, I don't think I could possibly do it. And it's just, I think... Yeah, I probably built up a um, expectation of myself that I thought I can I can't do this, I can't do this. That it wasn't until I really got into the job that I realised, oh no, I do fit in here. And I think the one thing certainly about this industry is rather than trying to be somebody else or fit into a mould that you think you need to fit into, it's really our individualities that are our strengths. So I, I kind of got over the whole. I am now going into a position where there's been a female presenter, Jenny Cook, who was so amazing. Rather than trying to compare myself to her, I thought, right, this is this is my start. I don't need to try and live up to an expectation in my head. Um, but it was an incredible two years and we interviewed some amazing names. Like One of my highlights was in the first couple of weeks where Ed Sheeran was up doing a gig and it was also Easter Sunday and okay. I had the great idea of giving Ed Sheeran an Easter egg, Or an ah. Ed Sheeran. Okay. So I, I remember going to Thornton's and getting like the biggest chocolate egg they had. And my mum, because she's really artistic, like iced his face onto it. And when we, oh I went to interview, I gave him it and he was like this is actually amazing I don't know if he ate it probably was too terrified thinking who's this weird girl giving me an easter egg but um He's I just remember, remember that, being in a room with Ed Sheeran he just walked he, he just walked in he was like hi hey guys I'm like oh my god that's Ed Sheeran that's Ed Sheeran because he was huge he was doing his world tour and everything at the time yeah. um, and I just thought I can't believe I'm actually doing this so it was great it was a brilliant few years and I think it certainly taught me a lot professionally because everything was completely unscripted. And even if there was elements of the show that, you know, because there was the three of us, sometimes two of us would know what was happening and we'd play a prank on one or we'd want to get somebody's reaction to something like really just raw and authentically. So I think it taught me how to ad-lib and just be quite, I suppose, comfortable without scripts and that kind of thing. So professionally, it it was brilliant. It was a really, really good two years.
0: And you were actually, I mean, I suppose Fate, um, I speak about Fate a lot, but Fate kind of played um, its hand in this because um, there was major changes in the way radio was getting done across the country. Mm -hmm. And it was suddenly announced that actually Capital FM, as we knew it, was kind of going um, and your jobs were all up in the air. um, The chances of you staying were going to be quite slim because of how they were wanting to change things. And then obviously BBC were then launching its, new ah. BBC scotland channel so like like so like how did that all work out how did how how did you even get the the kind of screening for bbc scotland
1: so it actually is fate's a great word because initially i had applied for the job they were just you know they were all advertised online i knew the channel was launching and they put up very there was something like 80 jobs um of all different obviously like it was from engineers and producers to presenters and reporters so there was loads of roles and um, so I applied and when you apply for a, a, a job in in the media quite often that it's not actually a case of applying for a job it's quite rare especially in presenting that there's a job you apply for quite often you're either headhunted or you're you have an agent that gets your show deal out there and people kind of pick you really so it's quite rare that it was a job that was actually advertised so I did um, put my reel in that I'd had stuff from STV and I went through the whole application process. And I remember having to go to a hotel in Edinburgh to do the screen test. But I think I just thought, this is never going to be me because it's such a small industry. You you hear rumors of other people who are applying. So I knew some people that had applied and I thought, what on earth? This is never going to be me. So I went in quite relaxed, I think. And also I was happy at Capital. So um, I went in and, and obviously the interview was quite daunting and they throw things at you not literally just throw <laughs> situations and scenarios at you to try and deal with um, but then I, I got the job and I initially actually started doing both jobs so I was going to capital in the morning to do a breakfast show from six till ten and then I was going to present on the nine between nine and ten at night so I was getting home at like half ten to then get up at five in the morning so I was really shattered but I Mm. thought I I couldn't really pick one or the other and I was enjoying doing both Um, and then it turned out that you know not long after getting the the BBC job they ended up axing the breakfast show yeah so I mean none of us actually expected it I'm not going to lie they made changes to Ofcom made changes to what in the amount of hours that had to come from a local area but I think, I still thought the breakfast show is the big show, they won't cancel that. It was huge,
0: that. yeah.
1: It was huge, I thought they might make changes elsewhere throughout the schedule, but I don't think they'll get rid of the breakfast shows because just like the breakfast show was big for us in Scotland, there was, you know, there was one in Swansea and Liverpool and Manchester and Birmingham. So everybody's breakfast show was really, it was why people would go to the station. Yeah. Um, but then they, they, they axed it one day, which was obviously brutal. Um, especially because I knew that I was okay. Mm-hmm. I knew that I had the BBC. Um, so, f- you know, for colleagues, not just in Glasgow, but around the country to know that there was other presenters that were going to be out of work, especially in, in an industry where there are not jobs. Yeah. You know, you don't just go, oh, I've, I'll just go and do another breakfast radio show. They've all, there's certainly 20 years ago, there was lots of lo- and lots of lo- local radio stations, but everything, everything's everything been shut down and everything's mm-hmm. so centralized, so um yeah that's kind of how that happened and i'm just i'm very lucky that i had another opportunity that i could kind of follow
0: and what do you feel um is the major differences from doing um bbc than doing capital FM? because they're both presenting but they're completely different streams and different types of media so like what like what have you learned the most out of the two of them
1: so the main difference i would say is the Presenting on capital comes with a certain amount of freedom that the BBC doesn't, and I, I don't want to make that sound like it's a, a a really negative thing against my role at the BBC because it's it isn't. But just in terms of my actual role, I was a freelancer, so I didn't, I, you know, I am kind of my own brand, if you like. Um, I'm responsible. I can take what opportunities. I can do whatever work I want, really, because I was a freelancer. Um, also, the fact that the show because it was unscripted and it was very much personality driven you could have opinions you could pretty much within reason though you could you could say what you wanted you know if you Mm. thought if you thought somebody on love island the night before had treated somebody terribly you could just say it you could just come on and give your opinion about anything you could tell your life stories um so there was a certain amount of freedom that came with it the bbc on the other hand because it's a news and current affairs program it's very heavily scripted it's timed the BBC is you know ruled like rigorously when it comes to impartiality balance you can't you know especially when you work in the you're contracted under news you can't go on and have an opinion either way you know even for working in sport I can't you know not, not that I do support either side of the old firm, but if I did, you couldn't go on and say. And I'm delighted tonight because rangers are saying, you, you know, it's that yeah, kind of yeah. thing that you just couldn't, you couldn't do. Um, so I would say it certainly makes it a little bit more formal, okay, a little bit stricter in terms of your scripting and everything
0: I suppose, but I suppose a, a little bit more challenging as well yeah, yeah because yeah. because you've got to be that kind of impartial even even you might be wanting to say something but you're like oh, I've just got to be very careful what I can yeah, say yeah. here yeah
1: and especially in, in live interviews if you're interviewing somebody who all of a sudden you know it's because on live television you never know what anybody's going to say so if somebody all of a sudden came out and said and I think it's absolutely awful that this person did this or I heard that you need to you need to be prepared to balance the other side and say well actually you know we've got a, a statement earlier this person said x y and z you always need to be able to if somebody throws something at you you need to be able to balance it and counter yeah. the argument which you know i'm quite lucky in the sense that because i do sport i, I don't get it that often but you know in news there's always going to be controversial contentious subjects and you're always going to get there's you know there's two sides and actually three sides probably to a lot of things you see
0: yeah.
1: um, on the on the tv so I think it is it is a lot more challenging and it's a totally different skill and I think the thing with Capital you were very much part of a team there was three of us whereas at the BBC it's very much been I've had to focus on you know my, myself I go out and if I present things I'm presenting it myself really
0: so you, I mean, so you are the kind of sports news anchor, um, but you also do the edit as well. Um, yes. So, so how do you go, like, how, how do you get into the sports section, firstly? <laughs> like, how did that happen? Tell me.
1: So I, when I worked at STV, one of the great things about working there was because they have fewer staff than the BBC, it's a huge operation, the BBC in comparison, but because STV, there were fewer of us, it meant for a young, particularly a young journalist starting out, there were so many opportunities. So that, you you know, you weren't, there wasn't lots of people, and lots of red tape and lots of different levels of, you know, you need to go in at this level and then work your way up to actually do an on-air report or whatever. You could go in at STV and it would be like that situation, John, as we were laughing about before we actually started recording. If somebody was like, I can't come in today because, you know, I have to isolate. In STV, it would be, right, Amy, can you do it? In fact, the first time I actually presented the sport was because Rahman had to go to an emergency dentist appointment. And I remember they were like, Amy, can you do the sport? And it was because my boss at the time had taken... He'd obviously remembered that I did have an interest in sport. My dad had been in football for years. Um, So I saw it as this is another opportunity. It's another... You know, it's another skill. To your
0: bow, yeah.
1: Into uh, to my bow. Um, so that's kind of how I got into sport. And then the the way the edit kind of came alongside that was because the bosses at the BBC, they'd obviously recognised that I'd come from Capital and the style of show that that was. And they were thinking, you know, we don't... I th- they were creating lots of things for the, the channel. And they thought, well, maybe Amy and David, who... People might know as Romeo from his cat from his radio days. They've, they kind of come from the same background, and maybe this could be something that we could try out. And it's kind of like entertainment news. Um, that the two of them do so they kind of make
0: and like you two make such a good kind of couple on screen because you're always laughing um and it is that kind of banter that you talked about that you have at capital fm that you have on screen and it's really nice to see although i'm really offended because you hardly ever talk about the real housewives so um so you i do want... you know
1: why this is because i don't think david watches it but i do to the point of i was watching the real housewives before i went to work yesterday
0: okay so Beverly, you, Hills, Beverly right. Hills okay so we need to speak about the ding dong ditch okay so where are you where are you on the whole Erica Jane situation
1: so I don't know all the I don't know all the background so I know there's been a lot of there's been various articles and I think there's been stuff come out since they were filming because I think the episodes I've just seen it must have been a good few months ago now. Yeah. Um, I don't know exactly the difference between, you know, filming and then when it actually goes to Eric. I don't know how long that is, but...
0: Like, it's about five months. Yeah.
1: About, uh, so a lot's obviously happened in that time. But where I'm at at the moment, I've just seen that she has just got her own house and her and Tom are no more. And she didn't know anything about okay. the, the kind of finances and, and all of that i i know because the preview for the next one that i'm just on a lot of the other housewives are questioning how much she knew okay i i'm with her i just
0: see i'm see like i'm with her as well and it seems very much like she's been in this kind of coercive controlled relationship um and but so have you seen the episode where she's at kyle's um desert home and they're having dinner
1: I think that's the one I have to watch because I've got one right. more update.
0: <laughs> she gives a story about Tom ending up in a ditch, and everyone's really, really confused by it. So, it'd be oh inter- wait,
1: I saw the pre. I think I saw the preview to this, and I did see. I saw people tweeting about it.
0: Yeah, so, so, it's,
1: whether so- or not he. Because he said he, he like broke his ankle, but it was actually worse or something. Yeah, so basically
0: like, they're trying to say that Tom has got dementia. Um, and um, and Erica has kind of said that over the past couple of like episodes. Yeah. Um, and basically he was driving home and they live up in the hills in Beverly Hills. And there's like winding roads up to their house. And uh-huh. he should know this road like the back of his hand, but he seemingly crashed his car and he was unconscious for a long time. And um, he woke up and um, and she basically found him and he had broken his ankle um, and ended up in this ditch, which is which is now been called the ding dong ditch. Um and 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 um and Sutton was really finding it hard to keep up with what was actually happening in this story. But
1: Is this like is this like when Kathy says Who's
0: hunky dory? <laughs> Who's hunky dory? Yeah, which would be my new, which would be my new tagline. But I've been doing a lot of research. Um, so basically, um, so um I don't know about you, but as a teacher, I've got to be part of like the general teaching council. But do you have to be part of like a society as a journalist?
1: So I mean there's there's the there's like unions, but there's not okay. like a general okay. society.
0: So basically Tom was meant to be part of this like law kind of society and he never signed up for it. So basically there was no one really to challenge him about anything. Um, And there was lots of complaints from previous cases where... um, like ex clients would say, um, "I need to see the financial statements from my court case," and he said, uh. well, "You don't need to see that." Blah blah blah. So he was basically telling people, "Oh, hey Amy, um, you won your court case. You got five million dollars. Well done." Like you, so you just like, believed him that you won the five million dollars. But and actually, you actually won like twenty. It was like twenty-five million. Yep. Okay. So there was like all that going on. Okay, um, but also his ex wife um knew everything that was happening and she outed him and she basically that's why the, the divorce happened um all this stuff happened um and but no one believed her and um, and she kind of vanished into thin air um turns out she's actually now dead <gasps>
1: so
0: we're not oh, yeah we'll never know the truth no so i'm wanting to know why this has not been discussed on the edit you need to you need to get me on okay right.
1: In the same way that we've had a Love Island and Married at First Sight correspondent, you should be our Real Housewives correspondent.
0: I would love that. Right. I would absolutely let love that. Let
1: me pitch it. Let me pitch it to the producer.
0: <laughs> because you know what? I watch all of them, babes. I'm on yeah. it. I'm on it. Anyway, getting back to you and your career, Amy. <laughs> so, um, so tell me. Um, so what's been the, like the hardest thing you've had to report on?
1: Oh, the hardest thing I've ever had to report on. Do you know, actually, in my, certainly my time at the BBC, I'm quite lucky in the sense that because it's mainly sport, there's never I've not had to deal with anything too traumatic. Yeah. Um, probably a tough interview, though, was I remember speaking to... Um, David Cox who's a footballer and this was kind of not long into my time at the BBC and we had him on because he'd been very open about his own mental health struggles and he'd been taunted by other opponents on the pitch um, and people from the stand and um, so I remember having him on and doing an interview about that and I I remember that being particularly tough one because it, it was just difficult to hear somebody that had Mm. experienced what he had but also because it did kind of strike a chord with me um kind of personally it's then hard to kind of park the personal feelings about a situation and remain professional when you are just when you're having that kind of conversation it is very all you want to do is be quite emotional about it and, and yeah empathize with a person so it's hard to kind of find the balance between that kind of empathy and understanding in a two-way conversation um so, and parking your own personal feelings on it
0: so you and you kind of just touched on that now um so you've came out um quite publicly about your own struggles with mental health and um, and for our listeners in the podcast your boyfriend Wayne um you lost him, um, and he had mental health issues, and he took his own life. Um, were the BBC supportive of you being so open about your um, about your mental health struggles? Um, and because it seemed like from a viewer from a viewer's point of view, they were. Um, um, and do you feel you were you were kind of supported by all that as well?
1: completely that's that's one thing I would say the, the BBC and just like the, the kind of structure I suppose that they have there is really really good when it comes to offering like staff support whether that's through obviously like individual managers that you would go to um I got counselling through the BBC so they were always always really understanding um I don't you know I remember things like I was due to be away on a trip for the first anniversary of Wayne's death and I remember when I was actually asked to go to the women's world cup I remember phoning my mom crying because I was like having a panic Mm. I thought I know the dates I can't I I just don't want to be away from home um it was almost that first anniversary is like such a it's so important (laughs) it's important but you're also dreading it yeah um so I remember just feeling like I really didn't want to be away from home and I just, but I also felt like this is my job and I just need to go and do it. And people would expect me just to be able to go on air and present and and do that. Um, so I kind of was really upset for maybe a few days. And then I thought, I just need to go and speak to somebody about it. So I did, I spoke to my manager who couldn't have been more understanding. They were like, mm-hmm. absolutely, of course. They were like, you tell us whenever you want to fly home, that is totally fine. We'll either get someone else to fly out to cover the remainder of the tournament. To be fair, it was actually the end of the tournament for Scotland anyway. Um, but they were like don't you worry we will have all of that in place if we need to do that so they've always been very very understanding of things like that or there's been you know I actually remember an item on the program that so just before the sport there'd been an item on suicide and it was it was a, a girl who'd come in and she was campaigning and she'd lost somebody close to her and I remember standing at the sports desk and there's only about there was maybe a minute and a half between the end of this item and the start of the sport and Rebecca one of the presenters just you know she obviously looked to me and her and Martin kind of came over and they were like are you okay you know that feeling when somebody Mm -hmm. says are you okay and you're really not and I remember just I just started crying on the set and I was like (laughs) no Mm -hmm. and I was crying but I knew I only had a minute and they were like, Amy, Amy, it's fine. You don't need to do this. We can quite easily do the sport. Like you don't need to do it. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm fine. And I like, looked up to the lights on set and I was like this. And I was like, how long have I got? And they were like 30 seconds. I'm like, okay. Good evening.
0: Yeah, <laughs> and I, mean, I just, um, yeah. I
1: kind of got, I got through that, but work were really good in that fact that they can kind have of recognised, okay, Amy, just, you know, you got through that, but do you need some time? Do you need know, do you need a couple of days or do you need to speak to somebody? So they've always been very, very kind of conscious of just what anybody needs, really. They're always Mm. very very supportive in that way. So it certainly made a rough time easier. And it was the same at Capital when it happened. Why do you
0: think, um, like, what made you be so open um, about your mental health journey and the trolling that you received why did you feel you had to be so open about it
1: so I think I remember the kind of first moment I thought no I need to do I need to be open about this and it was and again I've I have spoken about this before and Wayne's family would not mind me saying this at all because I I honestly don't think it is uncommon I think a lot of people feel this so when Wayne initially died his family had said what we're going to tell people Mm. we need to tell people it's an accident and I understood that initial feeling because I remember having to I remember having to break the news to people and I actually couldn't really break the news to many people. I had to get my family and the, you know, my mom made the phone call to his mom and things. Cause I was, I just can't, I can't possibly tell people this news. Um, so I remember that kind of immediate instinct of how on earth do you tell people that this has happened?
0: Yeah.
1: And his family would obviously, you know, I remember his mom saying, we'll, we'll just have to tell people it's an accident. We'll just have to tell people it's an accident. And I didn't say it out loud, but, I remember just feeling at the time I'm never going to tell say it's an accident even though I know that they probably thought they wanted to protect Wayne in some way and um, I can understand that kind of logic from them um but I just felt my role was public I was you know, had had made a career up to that point on the radio of bringing my whole self to work. And I would tell funny stories about my mum and my dad and my nights out at the weekend and daft things that had happened to me. But I don't want to be part of that. I don't want to say problem, but I don't want to be part of this kind of system that is like, let's just share all the good stuff and make our lives look absolutely amazing all the time. And then not be honest about what's going on behind the scenes. Because the people that are driving in their car, who knows what they're going through? Yeah. So they'll relate more to somebody that has actually been honest than you know the presenters that they think live these lives that are completely different to them. So I think I thought my role is so public that it's going to get out there. And it did, it was in the papers and I was obviously off. Um, and I thought, how am I going to go back? And I was like, did I just go back and act like nothing's happened and just allow people to figure out? And I thought no I want to actually before I get back to being the kind of on-air Amy that they're used to hearing in the morning I thought I want to address what's actually happened mm-hmm. and pretty much pretty much doing that is what and it wasn't even two weeks later it was 10 days later or something um, that kind of opened the door and I've never I've never hid behind it again I've just yeah. thought from day mm-hmm. one I'm going to be honest because if I'm going through this, so many other people are, Um, and it's funny because before Wayne, I'd never ever had any experience of suicide. I didn't know anybody that had lost anybody to suicide. It just it felt like something that happened to other people. Yeah, you know, something you'd see on TV. It was something that you'd maybe hear about or read about in a magazine, but it was never it was never something I'd ever experienced or ever thought I would experience um and then all of a sudden after being quite open about it I had I had so many people text the mm-hmm, station mm. cards were sent to capital people reached out through email people came up to me um and I felt like this is good because people are talking about things they haven't spoken about and every yep. one guy sent me a card I still have the card um and he said that he hadn't, he lost his wife twenty years ago, and he never spoke to anyone about it, not even his kids. He's like, we know it's, you know, we know how. He's like, I know how I lost my wife. Obviously, they know how they've lost their mum, but I have never spoken about it. And he's like, and listening to you speak quite openly, I'm now going to speak openly. And I thought, if I can do that to one person, that's all I cared about. And that's all. And it's,
0: and it's so important, and I think, um, I think that's the reason why I'm so. I'm, and I use this word a lot. I can't even say it now because of my stammer but um, I, I use the word authentic a lot um, and when you are being authentic um, in your workplace then you can do a better job um, and if you get upset or something triggers you your audience and for you it's a massive audience for me it's my classroom they know um, and I think that's why as a teacher um, I've always been really, really open about my own mental health and my own struggles with suicide and anxiety because I know there's actually kids who are going through something similar or they've got parents or brothers or sisters who are also going through that and mental health is something that um, we're getting much better at discussing but um, there's so many people who think it's such a taboo subject and death is such a taboo subject um, but it's something that we're all we're, we're all going to experience we're all going to go through grief is something that um, we need to be talking about um, it's something I spoke to Jane about in my previous podcast as well. Um, but I totally admire your honesty, um, and I think you have been an inspiration to so many people um, by by outing the trolls who were horrible to you for being open, um, but giving the inspiration to so many to be open about their journey with grief as well um, and mental health. So I want to say a big thank you, Amy, um, thank for you. that. Thank
1: you, Dean.
0: Um, so you are now in a new relationship um, so um, and he's a fireman as well Um, what do you think like what do you think Wayne would say to you now if he was here
1: oh do you know it's funny I think he'd be very proud Mm -hmm. I do think he'd be proud because the one thing I would say is with the way that Wayne's mental health was Wayne struggled a lot with his mental health he struggled with substance abuse um and the thing that I you know I hated that he hated himself for this but he really really struggled with how his mental health affected other people mm. and it almost was this kind of vicious cycle of you know he would do something or you know it would just in his mind he was a burden and his mental health was having an effect on me um and I think that if he was here now, I would like to hope that he would be glad that I'm not only trying, to, I've not only tried to help other people, and I've been honest about me. But I think he'd be glad that I have. Don't want to say found peace. Closure, maybe. Closure. I think just because those early months you know weeks and months and probably you know the first year mm. um my life and my mental health is really really fragile and I mm. think I think if he could certainly see me now he'd be glad that I've come this far because for a while I didn't think I could
0: yeah
1: and knowing him he would always because we thought so similarly he would always you know he'd be thinking in those early days I hate that heart Amy and that's all yeah. he ever thought every time he tried to hurt himself he felt guilty for hurting himself because he thought it was hurting me because I was yeah. you know there and you know I won't go into the kind of graphic detail but um there were times that obviously have left me pretty scarred from trying to save somebody's life mm-hmm. um and just the things that come along with that and I know that he he didn't like that his mental health was having an effect on me so I think he'd be glad that I'm now in a position where my mental health's a lot more stable and I'm yeah I found that kind of peace and closure that is really really difficult to ever imagine yourself finding in those
0: days I think I think as well when like my mum passed away um I was like so guilty for like a lot of reasons I had kind of like survivor's guilt I think um and um and something happened which I won't discuss just now maybe talk about it on a later podcast um but it but I walked away from that situation with closure and um, that actually things are going to be okay um, and that she'd be really proud of me and really proud of who I am um, and it felt like a weight off my shoulders um, and and I'm really proud of you Um, for um, for moving along with grief because that is such an important thing and something that we've spoken about before Amy about 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 grief kind of never leaves us we kind of have to move yeah. along with it um and I'm, I'm really excited to meet this fireman as well so it's the big um, yeah and I'm and I'm hoping he's good to you because if he's not he's going to get the gay mafia around know. So you know that he's very he's very he's <laughs> yeah.
1: very very good and he's good. very understanding and just he's a he's that He's safety. He's just mm-hmm. very, I feel very safe and secure and very
0: That's so yeah, important. Yep. Yeah. Good. And so what is next for Amy Irons?
1: Oh, what is next? Gosh, that's Are you gonna be
0: doing Hogmanay again? Up at the cap? Well at
1: the <laughs> Well, I don't know. I don't finger fingers crossed, fingers crossed, nothing, nothing is confirmed um but I've had gosh I had a blast doing it the last couple of years apart from absolutely freezing my- I have to
0: say my most funniest moment of you during Hogmanay was when you got you were doing something live to camera and then you got whisked off to do a Kaylee dance and um and you I don't know if you were expecting it or not but you kind of got whisked off and you almost kind of got hit somebody because you were <laughs> spinning so much yeah I was I-
1: like oh come on I'm like
0: <laughs> It made me laugh so much because I actually realised how uncomfortable you were as well.
1: I was like, great! <laughs> thanks for all of 15 seconds and then once they were off, I'm like, right, thanks. See you. Don't touch me. Yeah. do t- Get off. Thank you. Make up!
0: <laughs> um.
1: uh, oh, I, I loved it. And to be honest, see, the one thing I would say is I don't get, I don't get too carried away with what's next and I mean you'll maybe relate to this John obviously going through you know I think when you lose somebody and your life suddenly changes when you don't ever expect it to I used to as a kid be like I needed to know what's going to happen how long is it going to mm-hmm. take me to get there what do I need to do who's going to yeah. be there like I needed to have a lot of control I needed to kind of predictability I suppose I still have that sense of I like to be in control not not in a controlling way. I like to be in control of things for me. Like I like to know what kind of situations I'm getting in. But do you
0: not think here? as as someone who's got anxiety because you've spoken about that, like the pandemic's actually been a really good thing for us? Because I've I'm just, yeah, I'm just like, right, well, there's nothing I can do. I can't really change this. I'm stuck here. So like what's the point? No. <laughs>
1: I'm <doing> my first <laughs> I'm doing my first in-person event on Saturday at Hamilton Park a race course and it's ladies day and i already have the anxiety about it i'm like i i hate standing i think it's different i hate standing on stage as myself
0: Mm -hmm.
1: i hate standing on stage presenting as amy Mm -hmm. looking at people's eyes um i love being on stage acting i like behind a camera and a microphone that's fine but see standing on stage as me so I have that to do on Saturday and I already know that I'll be an anxious wreck beforehand. So its I've loved being at home. I've yeah. loved not having to kind of work up the courage to go into a social situation because the thing is, nobody ever knows it because when you go into these situations, you just, we perform, we just totally. switch on. The mask is on. Um, but it takes a lot out of you as well.
0: Oh, it's exhausting.
1: It takes, yeah. so, knackered and you're, oh, just... So it's in a way, yeah. The pandemic's been good for good for that. But as for what else there there is in the future, I don't like to think too far ahead because I also know. I know what this industry can be like. It's you know pretty brutal, cutthroat. Um. So I try to just be grateful for the opportunities that I currently have. And if it ends tomorrow, I'll do something else.
0: Yeah.
1: I'll find my other another path. I don't get too bogged down on, like. What am I doing next? What am I doing next? And I'll just yeah. take
0: the opportunities, come amazing. Okay, so Amy, um, how will my listeners find you on the social media?
1: How do they find me on the socials? So you can find me on Instagram and on Twitter at Amy J. Irons.
0: Okay, and can we just say Twitter, can we please give Amy her blue tick? Because she's still not got it yeah. and I'm absolutely flipping fuming at that. So I don't
1: even know how you get a blue tick.
0: Well, I'm starting a campaign, so uh, <laughs> I'm wanting I'm wanting Amy to get that blue tick and she better get it, Twitter, otherwise the gay mafia will be around with their real housewife, Shady Binder, to come and get you as well. Okay.
1: Okay. Hear that Twitter.
0: Amy, thank you so much for being my guest this week. Oh, um,
1: I've loved every moment. I've loved it. It's Honestly, been amazing. All night.
0: Um, but thank you so much. Um, and listeners, I will see you next week. Thank you. I hope you like this week's podcast. Life isn't all diamonds and rose, but it should be. So until next week. Take care.